0: to the Reunion Church podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Now I'm going to read um, our passage for our teaching today. comes from the psalm, Psalm 103, 1 through 19. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or pay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him, and His righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep His covenant and remember to obey His precepts. The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Hi, everybody.
1: Good morning. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Um, my name's Katie, and uh, I'm going to be teaching today. And yeah, I'm not usually teaching up here. I'm usually teaching in the kids' room. Um, and or I, my regular job as a teacher as well, um, and I teach preschool. So it's nice to be teaching with fully developed brains <laughs> in the room. Maybe, maybe, all, maybe most of you. Maybe some of you are still getting them. <laughs> Uh, But I really, I appreciate it, and I'm excited to share with you all today. Uh, So last week we started a new series called Teach Us to Pray, and we talked about how we can all learn to pray, and Russell kind of gave the 101 prayer using this hexagon that I actually still use today, like have used for years, um, that take you kind of through each part of the Lord's Prayer and guide you through prayer. So we're going to focus mainly on the first part, which is our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And this is about how we posture ourselves toward God to pray and how that matters. And so Psalm 103 is our teaching text today and um, thought it was a very good representation of how David postured himself toward God to pray. And so when I was preparing this, um, I kind of had this under-the-radar stressor all week that I wasn't really acknowledging until yesterday. Uh, which is, how can I preach about something that I would not consider myself the best at? Um, Yeah, like maybe you think the same thing about your relationship with prayer. And I think characteristically, like my prayer life has been that of asking God for kind of clarity and healing and miracles and um, seeing him come through in really big ways. Uh, And I think, and I'll get to some of those stories in a bit, but uh, I think in college I was discipled in a way that was really, um, helped me believe in the power of prayer a lot. And, um, John 15:7 it says, if you remain in me, if, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. And I took that to really to heart. Um, and I, you know, it taught me to believe in the power of prayer. And I think this message has kind of taken me on a different journey to, um, in my relationship with prayer and just kind of evaluating the way that i approach prayer and how i approach god and more of like a um you know presence oriented way um and less about you know a practical like do can we do this can we god can we make these things happen um i just I, I loved reading this passage and really being able to focus on david and his posture and kind of how he was approaching god in the midst of some pretty crazy circumstances uh, which we'll talk about today. And so um, maybe you're here thinking you feel powerless in the face of prayer because you're not a person of faith and you don't believe it'll work. And so I think prayer is for you because you only need a little bit of faith um, to pray. And I think that, you know, John 15:7, like I said, it it means what it says. I believe that if we remain in God and he remains in us, then we can ask him for things. And I believe in the power of that. Um, and maybe you're angry with God and you don't want anything to do with prayer, and that's okay. Uh, I, I, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> and the person we're going to learn about today could have hated God for the pain that he endured on account of God, but instead he chose to pray. And maybe you don't fear God and you don't feel a need to pray because you have everything you need. And, the, and I'll tell you, the man who wrote the psalm. He had everything that he could possibly want or need. He was a king. And regardless of, you know, regardless of those things, he wanted to chase after God's heart and become a better man. And, um, and he also made some big mistakes. So let's look at kind of the context of this passage. Psalm 103 is, about, is written by this man named David. And uh, the Psalms are prayers. They are a collection of prayers. And um, so, when we read this, David is praying to God with his words, and the scholars actually kind of hypothesize about when each psalm was written, which is really interesting. And I kind of gasped when I read about what they think when this, they think this psalm was written, and um, and it was after David was forgiven for sins that he had committed surrounding this person named Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. And so, some of you might know that story. The, it's a longer story. It's very, very, very complicated. Um, but kind of the shortened version is that David was made into a king, and he abused his power and in proper terms to rape a woman, Bathsheba, and impregnate her and deny it and hide it. And, um, and then eventually he tried to bring her husband home from war to then sleep with her to hide the pregnancy. <laughs> And when that wasn't successful, he then had her husband killed on the front lines of battle because he was king, and he could send whoever he wanted, wherever he wanted. Uh, so it's really messy. And, uh, and he was confronted, and also Bathsheba eventually gave birth to a child. And he was eventually confronted by a prophet named Nathan, and he was exposed for his sins, and we'll talk about that. Uh, and his future child actually dies a week after he confesses his sin and after he repents. And so David, this kind of complicated character, uh, was also this really important marker of Jesus' lineage in the Bible. And so it's a great reminder that the Bible is full of antiheroes, such as David, and if you will. <laughs> and uh, it's a chilling story, and I recommend reading it. It's in 2 Samuel. So... Um, We're going to go through this psalm from the lens of the first part of the Lord's Prayer, like I said, and I want you to notice how carefully David um, received God and also how intentional David believed God um, and God's character, how David came to God believing that he was coming to who God actually is and not who David wanted God to be. And then also, finally, kind of remembering who we are. And so those are kind of the three buckets that we're going to talk about today. Uh, re- receiving God's presence, remembering who God is, and remembering who we are. And so the first, the first two verses, praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. And so um, this is about rece- God, David receiving God in prayer and I think what's most difficult for us to understand about the scriptures sometimes is the silence that took place in and around these spaces. Um, I think we go right into reading the scripture, but forget that David was more than likely practicing silence and reception from God long before he wrote these words. Uh, we can't read how much time he took to be silent, how many, you know, how he bre- was, if he was breathing, taking, taking some time to breathe, um, but, you know, And he found a place to be alone. But we know that that's what Jesus did consistently in prayer. And so he went away by himself, often disappearing to pray. And we're going to focus on that first. Uh, So now looking at the words in these verses, uh, bless. The word bless in the original Greek is barak, which can mean both to kneel and to bless God in adoration. um, And bless man as a benefit. So this mutual blessing exchange. But strangely, it can also mean to curse as kind of a euphemism, like blessing someone with destruction (laughs) and um, blessing someone with pain. And bless is kind of this complex word here, and it could be used to exude all of David's emotion and his desires to want to bless God while also possibly cursing God at the same time. Um, And David's not asking, but he's commanding himself to bless God. Um, and he's not saying, you know, God, can you help me bless you? He's saying, bless, bless the Lord, oh my soul. And so soul, right there, translates as nephesh, which means breathing, and a breathing creature accompanied by kind of like a figurative creature or person. So I think like kneeling, surrendering to God, and um, and breathing in our souls are appropriate ways to begin prayer. And All my inmost being, praise his holy name. David willfully wants to begin prayer with his body, mind, and soul, and spirit. And David kind of had to process and reflect on many problems in his kingdom and this kind of silence and posturing towards God um, paired with this repetitive language is how David started. So how do we do this? How do we come to God with that same posture? Um, Pete Grieg, he's the founder of the 24-Hour Prayer Movement, and he wrote a really practical book called How to Pray, Um, and it says his kind of process is starting with first to pause and rejoice, and that's what we see from David here, and so how do we pause? How do we pause um, in New York City, y'all? It's it's hard, and it's really hard, and so I, I think that, you know, we have to find some sort of solitude, and... That can also seem impossible. Uh, but I think New York City Living may have us believe that we need to like, go to great measures to find solitude, but it might, may actually be simpler than we think. Um, what if solitude was just intentional, quiet space during the day? And um, kind of, here's what I do, or what I've been doing. <laughs> um, I think noise-canceling headphones are from the Lord I think he gave them to us. Um, And I'm telling you, it has changed my life. Like, I, they have been invented for New York City residents and especially maybe for me and my kids and the jackhammer that is outside. You know, we live, we're on, like, 23rd Street, and there's just always, always stuff. There's always stuff going on. And so these headphones, I mean, I, it is mind-boggling. Like, I put them on, and, you know, you press that little thing, and it just... And I am in the countryside. Like, I am walking down the path. There's grass. There's butterflies. The pigeons almost look cute, you know? And and you're just kind of like, wow. I mean, if you haven't tried this, you need to. Like, as you leave church, as you're going on the train, just, I mean, seriously, like, put them on. If you don't have them, go buy some. It is life-changing. And so I think, you know, and, but also be careful, you know, be careful because there's, there's stuff, there's some stuff out there. And so be, you know, know where you are, <laughs> and pay attention, but like you can also kind of go into your own world. Um, so pausing with noise, pausing the noise, getting into some quiet space. And that can also mean moving. Um, I think walks are sometimes my most alone moments, honestly the only alone moment sometimes I get in a day. And, um, and then the train is another place that you know you're together, but you can kind of like, you can kind of be quiet and alone. And uh, when I first learned I was preaching on this, I was stoked. I love silence. I was like, I love solitude. I love being alone. I love receiving quiet. Um, I love receiving peace. I am obsessed with these things. Like um, they are, you know, Daily op- the monks have the daily offices, like my kids' nap time is that daily office where the monks, you know, they go pray during these scheduled parts of the day. Like the quiet parts of my day are like, okay, here I am. Um, but then I remember that I am receiving God's presence and the very person of God when I pray. And so solitude is actually not the goal. Um, it's a vehicle for prayer. It's a place to pray. And I think that's really important. Um, In the book Prayer by Ronald Rolheiser, he says, it's going to come up here, Ironically, most of us crave solitude. (laughs) As our lives grow more tired, as we begin to talk more about burnout, we fantasize about solitude. We imagine it as a peaceful, quiet place where we're walking by a lake, watching the sunset, or smoking a pipe in a rocker (laughs) by the fireplace. (laughs) But even here, many times we make solitude, yet another activity, something we do. Solitude, however, is a form of awareness. It's a way of being present and perceptive within all of life. It's having dimension of reflectiveness in our daily lives that bring us a sense of gratitude, appreciation, peacefulness, enjoyment, and prayer. It's a sense within ordinary life that life is precious and sacred enough. And so another application for this section of receiving God, so it's finding that solitude, and then the other thing is breathing. And I mean, let's talk about breath, OK? I Did you know that 70% of your body waste is eliminated in your lungs through breathing? Like 70% of your body waste is coming out of your body through breathing. It's insane. And I think using the bathroom is like 10%. <laughs> so it's way more, way more important. And so I'm always wanting to understand more about the way our brain works I, because I'm a teacher. And I teach little kids, so I'm trying to figure out how they're thinking, and um, and then I can. Psychologists actually believe a lot of anxiety is connected to shallow breathing, and so, like, think about that for a second. Everybody, just pause and breathe. And with my students, I actually do this exercise called four seven eight breathing, which is you breathe in for four seconds. You hold for seven seconds, and then you breathe out for eight seconds. And that's actually helping your body regulate and reach equal equilibrium again. And my, yeah, so, like, I'm, a, I'm an early childhood educator. I teach four- and five-year-olds. And um, I can say with assurance that, like, every single self-regulation practice I use with my kids, and they need it, um, is, to teach, is to teach children how to breathe and to stop and to pause and smile even because that releases serotonin in your brain and then to breathe, and um, it's it's in every single one, and so breathing is the body self-regulating physically, and I think prayer with that is God's gift to kind of maintain our spiritual equilibrium with God, and breathing and prayer must happen together, because without breathing, we would die, and breathing allows our body and mind and soul to kind of remain stable, and so just taking a minute to breathe before you pray is really, really good, Um, and especially if you're feeling anxious, I think even that, like, kind of four, seven, eight breathing, I I do that a lot when I'm feeling worked up or I'm catching myself forgetting to breathe, and so um, Isaiah 30, 15 says, only in returning to me and resting in me will you be saved, and quietness and confidence is your strength, and so also I think of how, think of how silly it sounds to kind of exclude breathing from prayer, like, all the important things that you do or that are done in life require that. And so, you know, focus on that when you pray. And um, let's keep going. Let's look at kind of the second bucket of remembering who God is. And this is verses 3 through 12. And I'm just going to read it again. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies that you uh, who who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And so looking at these first three verses, these are kind of bold truths that David's saying about God. Um, this aspect of prayer is so important and central, and I want you all to recognize it too, that David honors and acknowledges God in prayer as who God actually is, and not who he wants God to be. And that's tough. And so let's look because verse 6, and this is going to, this like, I was reading this and I was just, I had this moment with God where, like, amazed at what David is teaching in this prayer because of what David has been through in his life. And so verse 6 says, we're going to kind of jump around, but verse 6 says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Returning to the story of David and Bathsheba, David was exposed to his sins through the prophet Nathan, who kind of came to him, God was like, Nathan, go talk to David, and you need to tell him a story about what's going on. And um, so Nathan came to David and told him this parable about a man killing another man's sheep. And Nathan asked David what he thinks should be done as a consequence for the sin of the parable. He's like, what should, what should happen? And David says, as the Lord lives, and this is on here in Second in Samuel, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And so it's well known in the Bible in the Old Testament by people who are studying it, like David would have known this, which is why he said this, is that um, if you steal or kill a man's sheep, then you must restore it fourfold. And David himself used his power over more powerless people. And now he is required to atone for this choice based on his own confession. And God exacted this fourfold restitution on David. And um, because he killed Uriah, he had Uriah killed. And so four of David's sons were killed. And that was Bathsheba's child, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah. That's heavy stuff. And in our psalm today, we see David praising God for working justice and righteousness for the oppressed. The very thing that he did. And he's still praising God for God's character. And that, whoo, I really could not comprehend that when I was reading it. And, um, and then David goes on to also praise God for his forgiveness. And in verses three to four, he writes that God forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases and who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. And so in Psalm 51, it's another psalm that David writes, and that's the psalm that David's writing to confess this sin that he's done. And it's pretty brutal. Um, He had not repented for months. Like this child, this is after the child's born that he is confronted and then eventually repents. Um, So he'd ignored that sin for months, tried to hide it and stuff it down. And so he writes in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And so David's praising God for his justice, mercy, and forgiveness. This is after his own sinful offenses have been accounted for and brought to justice and it's painful. And so David understood, though he understood God's heart, and he understood the character of God in prayer, and it's de- that it's desirable even in the darkest of circumstances. And that God must remain just if he is God. And then verse 9 through 12 goes on to say God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, And abounding in love, he will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And instead of feeling repaid for his sins, David, however, saw God's character and had faith in God first before trying to justify his circumstances. Um, And so... Let's look into that. what does David's example teach us about how we can view God in prayer. Um, I think David showed us how we can surrender to God. Um, I think that's the main kind of application from this is that um, you could say that the very act of praying is surrendering. And um, acknowledging kind of this unwavering, unchanging character of God. Um, and, and so what does this mean for us? it means we're not God. It means you are not your own God. And um, surrendering doesn't mean to take what you want from God and apply it to prayer or to leave these things about God and to only pray to this God um, or to make God look more like yourself that you're praying to yourself. That's not who God is. And so um, God demands our whole self, our whole being to be his and his alone. And I think that we can also lump the Psalms into this kind of recipe for self-gratification or self-actualization. Like, I'm gonna pray, and I'm gonna kind of realize more about myself, and I'm gonna be better after that. Uh, I think we can remind ourselves of these really good things about God and about ourselves, um, but also I think that this is a relationship with God that we're giving to, and so it's not just, it's not just taking what we want. Um, As one commentator explains, the psalms are not mantras designed to transport us into alternate states of consciousness. They are not psychological recipes for healthy living. They are opportunities for us to get right one more time. I love that. One more time. The proper relationship between us, God's created beings, and God, the creator and ruler of the universe. And so this is what it's about. It's about David getting right with God, and and he didn't have to pray. David didn't have to pray, he probably didn't want to. He made giant mistakes with arguably greater consequences for those sins and then he came back to pray and he came back to repent and after the pain and the loss and the anger, he returned to his maker and he acknowledged his humanity. And um, and I think kind of the biggest piece in the surrender piece is that he came to God in surrender to understand the heart of God. Like he came to try and understand God like, I'm coming to you, I don't understand all of this, but I'm going to praise you, I'm going to talk to you, and I'm going to, you know, comment on who you are, God, um, and try and understand that in prayer. And, and so I think, you know, maybe think of sitting in the Met at a stunning piece of art, and, you know, it's exactly what it is. You're, it's unchanging, it's, it's gorgeous, it's telling of a truth. And welcoming that weight it brings and allowing it to affect us without us affecting it. It's kind of, it's not consuming the art, but it's stopping long enough to notice its value, even if it's painful to look at. Um, Like, if you've ever been to the Met and sat in front, any art nerds in here, Carvaggio, you ever sat in front of a Carvaggio and it's just like gruesome, like somebody's head's getting cut off and you're like, but it's unbelievable. Like, you're just, it's, Profound to look at and try and understand. Um, and so to honor a painful scene with emotion and vulnerability. And so I was thinking of kind of about my own life and how I have prayed, when I've prayed really reverently before God to try and understand Him um, and comprehend and commune with God really authentically despite my circumstances. And so when I was in high school, Um, I had a friend who was kind of on and off in my life for many years, and he was really important to me. Um, He also went to my church, and he ran with different friends who kind of lived more on the edge of high school rebellion than I did. Um, I was a rule follower. I didn't want to do anything to risk my GPA. I was just, I was going to follow the rules, Um, and we kind of had this friendship that turned into what you can call a situationship. Is that the right term, right? Um, It was kind of a situationship over the years, because, like, I'd bring him to church, um, but he also kind of hated church, and he went because I would bring him, and then we, you know, he was in a band, um, and, yeah, he was in a band, and he revealed to the world Get ready, guys. Buckle up. He revealed to the world that he had major feelings for me by writing a song and performing it at our church. (laughs) Guys. Guys. You can't make this up. Like, epic high school vibes. So epic. Like, I was a rule follower, but somehow I was embarrassed a ton by boys in high school. Like, and I didn't even date. I was just... It's like what is going on? That's why I didn't date. It was scary. I was so embarrassed. And so um, over the years, kind of, we developed this deep care for each other. And um, I think I learned most about prayer by praying for him, um, because I prayed for him so often. <laughs> I was like, to stop making the choices that jeopardize his relationship with his family and with his future, and um, and with God. And I saw him in pain. I saw him experience a lot of depression. An addiction and I wanted to help him. And so um kind of God broke into his life in really miraculous ways through prayer. I I mean it was it was insane. I at one particular time leading to kind of this miraculous conversion experience when he was a senior in high school, like he, you know, absolutely wild, and he really kind of received the Holy Spirit like a fire inside of him. He changed completely. And um and it was, happened after a night of a bunch of my friends praying for him because he was going to get kicked out of his house, and like he was in really big trouble. And it was my first experience in life when I really had to learn to trust God in prayer despite any outcome. And I was not in control of my friend, and the only outlet I really had was prayer. And so we were really close, uh, but at the end of high school, I kind of felt I had to distance our relationship because I was going to college here. And, um, and he very much did not want me to go. And he said he, he, said he was going to come to New York. And, and I was like, it was complicated. So I, I knew he kind of needed a journey with God on his own. And, um, and so then fast forward to a few years later. Um, I was studying abroad, and we were not in contact. Uh, but one evening, I got word from my friend that he had suddenly, I got word from a friend that my friend had died in a car accident really suddenly, three, three years later after high school. He was 21. And I will kind of never remember that moment. I ran outside into the field. It was dark, and I sat in front of a soccer goal and just wept. Um, and I kind of came to God in prayer so authentically and so surrendered because I knew there was nothing that I could do but pray. Um, and I only had God to trust that God would take care of him, you know? And... And he took care of him until the end, and so thankfully, my friend did. He he passed following Jesus. He died following Jesus and loving Jesus and seeking God's will for his life, and which is kind of a miracle that was born out of prayer. And um, I I think that all of that taught me that God loves us deeply and hears our prayers, and that you know meeting God in those circumstances was really. Yeah, I met the God who was unchanging, and that was comforting to me, even though I couldn't change my situation or my friend's situation. And so, um, and the other thing is life is short, y'all. Like, in lieu of that, I mean, let's look at the third part of this psalm and remind us of who we are. Sorry, my earrings are banging on the, I was warned about this, and I didn't listen, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Okay, so remembering who we are. And this is verse 13. Uh, starting verse 13 through 19. And it says, "'As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him.' And his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So let's look at how David views himself in prayer for the last part of this passage. Verse 13 says, a father has compassion on his children. And so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. It is truly impossible to articulate how much compassion I have on my kids. Um, I have two kids, and they do just wildly beautiful things, and then absolutely insane things. And I watch, and I'm just in awe of it all. <laughs> like, it's that I'm still, like, it's this compassion, this love, it just bubbles out of me. And, and it gives me a picture of how God would view David with love despite his choices And David also understood his own belovedness despite his failures. And I think that's really profound, too, that David really understood that. Um, And David also had a super humble understanding of his humanity, even as a king. And that says something. Um, Verse 14 through 16 says, He knows how we are formed, and he remembers we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower in the field. The wind blows over, and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. Dust. Uh, this is strangely comforting in a kind of the influencer world we live in, maybe a little bit. Um, but also thinking of this dust <laughs> reminds me. Uh, this reality reminds me in the scene of uh, Jennifer Coolidge in White Lotus. Anybody seen? <laughs> Please, yes. Um, so if you haven't seen the show, Jennifer Coolidge plays kind of this loner woman. Who travels to this beautiful? She's very rich, and um, she travels to this beautiful resort to kind of scatter her mother's ashes, who she hated. And um, and if you haven't seen this scene, it is iconic. Like I, Russell, and I were watching it, and I am so like I am we crying, laughing so hard, can't breathe. It really hits this point home because she is truly so lonely that unbeknownst to this couple that she's on the boat with, she has joined their honeymoon cruise boat, like ride for a dinner to scatter her mother's ashes and brought them with her. Like they didn't know. And she's there scattering her mother's ashes because she's so lonely. And (laughs) it's like so disparaging and soul scathing. You're just, oh, you're like, oh, that's just bad. It's so bad. Um, and there's absolutely nothing sacred about the process. Like, she is just, she's making the entire thing about herself, (laughs) and so, um, incidentally, I've also scattered ashes into the ocean with my grandmother, and if you've been around for a little bit, a month or two, you've maybe met my grandma, she comes to reunion, and uh, she's kind of one of the reasons I came to New York in the first place, and um, she's an artist, I'm an artist, probably because of my grandma, And my grandma understands this concept of dust a lot better than Jennifer Coolidge did uh, because she isn't, my grandma isn't scared of her humanity. Uh, She understands it and accepts it. Like she has endured a lot of loss and suffering in her life, um, especially in her years as a mother of young children. And she will tell you that she has died on the hospital table before and experienced heaven and, um, and, she says she doesn't know why she's still here, but she's never been afraid to die since. <laughs> and, and my grandma lost, um, yeah, she, she lost her husband to cancer before he got to see his grandchildren. And she kind of took an under, this understanding of loss and accepting it to a new level when she lost my grandfather's ashes for over 20 years. Like, could not find them, or him, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> And, um, and then we finally found them, and we took them to the ocean, and my grandfather was a sailor, and he loved to sail, and we dumped them in. And, um, but my grandma understands her humanity. She's suffering and all in the face of Jesus, and she doesn't hate him for it. Um, and that's how she prays. And so I think as humans, to see us, ourselves as seeds, like weathering kind of these storms of life, looking for the sun, saying, grow me, looking for the rain and saying, quench my thirst, and sticking roots into the ground, begging it to nourish me. Um, This is how we can come to God, I think. And so verse 17 through 19 says, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and keep his covenants and precepts. And so to apply this to our lives, the Lord's love, even as we can recognize our humanity, Prayer you know, wakes us up to this love in our life, and it reminds us, like the scripture says, that we're, we're like flowers, better dressed than a woman on her wedding day, as Jesus says. Um, we reflect our maker, and prayer reminds us kind of of this beauty. And my grandma understands that, too. She magnifies that in her paintings that line the walls of our house and, um, and all of her children and grandchildren's homes. And so uh, Walter Brueggemann puts it in his book on praying the Psalms that pra- Psalms can be praises of newness of a new life and fresh life that didn't seem possible before, and in David's case seemed very impossible. And David and my grandma saw that new start after immense pain and loss, and a, um, that all hope was not lost in prayer. And David is praying about this joy. And so that to conclude. Um, I hope and pray that this passage is healing for you all like it was for me and is for me. I mean, I remember, you know, reading this in my most angsty days as a high schooler, navigating depression and anxiety and not really knowing what was going on in my life and kind of like salve on a festering wound, um, reminding us of the quiet solitude that prayer can usher us into where we can meet God and discover who he is and remember who we are as both dust and beloved children of God. Kind of that interesting juxtaposition. And so if you're still hesitant to approach prayer, I kind of want to recognize some potential hesitations to reflect on. Um, You know, when David took time to pray in solitude, you might think, oh, you know, I give my whole self to my job or to serving or to being a parent or to being a good friend or to art or to, you know, your civic duty. Um, like, I do all these things, and those are good things. And so, like, I don't, I don't have time or need time to pray. Um, and Pete Grieg, the founder of the 24 Prayer mo- Movement, says, um, everything can't be prayer. If it were, then the perfect human would never have retreated away to pray. Um, and I heard kind of this story about a woman, this woman, named Susanna Wesley, um, years ago, and it stuck with me for years and years, like 10 years, and she um, she was a mother of John Wesley, who's kind of the father of Methodism. And her story is she was a mother of 10 children and had lost nine additional children in infancy. And she was married to a poor preacher. Her house burned down twice. Her husband was imprisoned twice for ethical mismanagement. And the church was kind of empty. And she homeschooled her children six hours a day and gave them each time individually with her throughout the week. And she kind of eventually started a Sunday school, and eventually it was, like, overflowing. Everybody was there. And how did she do all this? Oh, my, oh my gosh. She has 10 kids. 10. And she, you know what she would do? She would put her apron over her head. She would sit down and put her apron over her face, and she would pray every day. And that was the signal for her kids to leave mommy alone. Like, mommy is off the clock. Mommy is in prayer. <laughs> and, this, and, and and so I want to recognize that she, she mothered John Wesley, who is the father of the Methodist church, that has now more than 80 million people, a part of it, around the world today. And so, remembering, and so remember that, that you know you can take time. I can take time. And then if you're thinking about who God is, and you're like, oh, we're, David's saying, you know, if we fear God, we're going to come to prayer. You may hear David say, God loves those who fear him. And you're trying to understand who God is, but you may think you have no God to be afraid of when life's circumstances have traumatized you enough. Um, the sins of other people, the family you were born into, an abusive relationship, a devastating loss. Like, what did David have to be afraid of? He chose these things, and he did these things for himself, to himself. Um, and he had a position of power and privilege I think on the opposite side of this this is that David didn't have to fear God because of his position, but he did fear God. And I think now it's kind of the time to look at the better David, which is Jesus. And Jesus was a lowly king, and he was born into poverty and with no privilege. And he suffered and was persecuted and was wrongfully accused, imprisoned, and crucified. And he was a completely innocent man, and did he blame his father no, instead said he prayed to his father. And so lastly, remembering who we are as we wrap up, and we can, the band can come up. Um, yeah, remembering who you are, I think, like, feeling unloved. Um, you know, we need, we need God's love, and we need to be reminded of that. And God loved David, and God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us so that he could be closer to us and forgive us without a burden on us, and live forever with us. And I think that going into prayer with that kind of belovedness is also so, so important. Um, So thank you all today for being with me and tracking with me. I'm going to pray. Yeah, let's bow our heads together.